Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. So we are continuing through Mark, and we will be in um, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Well, if it's your first time joining us, welcome. Um, glad to see that actually so many of you turned out with all the hysteria going on. Um, yes. I have my own thoughts on what's happening right now in the world. I will keep those thoughts to myself. And I will just remind us that... I'll say this. You know, we live in a world that is in so many ways, so, so secure, and people are just about their own story, their own narrative, and they're just pursuing that just almost blindly. And I do think, though we mourn the death and sickness of many uh, who have been affected by, you know, whether it's the flu this year or whether it is the coronavirus, when things like this happen, they rock people's world because they undermine that progressive narrative of it's getting better all the time and I am just going further and further and I can secure myself and have the life that I've always dreamed, especially the Western secular narrative. And so just I would encourage you, church, as we have a refuge and strength in God most high, uh, the one who, um, as Psalm 121 says, Uh, We lift our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He who keeps you will not slumber or sleep. And so I remind you of that. We have such security in the Lord uh, that no matter what happens, he will keep us. He will protect us. That even death cannot keep us from God and from what God has for us. And so that we can be, uh, as it were, these pillars in our community uh, of peace and that we can minister and serve those who are being, you know, just totally rocked by this. So just a pastoral word of encouragement. So if it is your first time, uh, we are going through the gospel of Mark and we are taking uh, this book and we're using it as Christians have done for centuries, really as a template to understand in a deeper way what it means to be disciples of Jesus. A few weeks ago, we looked at Mark's gospel being an invitation to discipleship to Jesus. Uh, It's an invitation to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. 
So that means then as we're walking through Mark, as maybe you're reading along, I would just encourage you uh, that you would be looking for things about Jesus that you can live out. Now, we can't do everything that Jesus did, right? You can't die for anyone's sins. You cannot rise from the dead, okay? Don't try it, right? It will not work well for you. But in the ways that we can, let's follow Jesus. That's what this book is about. It's an invitation to follow the rhythms, habits, and disciplines of Jesus' life, to follow him in these things, to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did. Um, I've been really blessed by Dallas Willard as I've been studying more and more about discipleship and discipline. And he talks about how really the big idea of the Gospels is that we can become like Jesus, that this is the goal of the gospel, not just to forgive our sins and get us a ticket to heaven when we die or that we could get out of this world or this crummy situation, but really that we would be transformed, that we would be made like Jesus, that we would become children of God. Yes, by the work, the redemptive work, atoning work of Jesus on the cross, but then by following him, by becoming like him. And we are to follow him, as Willard says, in his overall way of life, as our way of life, totally. It's not just that we take, you know, a few pieces of Jesus' life that we like, that we prefer. It's not just that we follow what he said, but we follow his rhythms. And we looked, remember, I think two weeks ago, we looked just at Jesus' rhythm of silence and solitude, of being alone with the Father, his priority of seeking the presence of God. We'll look at his priority of prayer. This morning, we're going to look at his priority of seeking those who are far from God. So again, as we walk through this book, this is going to be uh, our big focus for us, learning the rhythms of Jesus. And so here, as I just said in Mark 2, in the midst of this continuous conflict with the religious leaders, it's going to go on into chapter 3, we have Jesus inviting sinners into his inner circle. I love that one. It says, for there are many tax collectors and sinners For many of them followed him. It's like, oh, what an interesting note. Like when you think about Jesus, and maybe you've watched like Jesus of Nazareth, or you've watched some of those other, you know, made-for-TV gospel movies, I guess is what they are. You know, like the crowd that Jesus keeps is, is usually pretty kept, right? It's pretty safe. But if you really think about it when you read the Gospels, I mean, this probably looks something like a zombie apocalypse, right? You've got like people with missing limbs. You've got blind people. You've got, you know, prostitutes, tax I mean, this is a motley crew that followed Jesus around. It was not pretty. It was not nice. And I just love this note by Mark. There were many of these kinds of people that followed Jesus. Jesus. So we're going to look at maybe what that might look like for us as followers of Jesus. So I would like to suggest that these, this section, verses 13 through 17, what you get out of it really depends on how you see it. And I think that there are three groups in this story and three ways to see and understand this story that can help our understanding. One way to see it is through the eyes of the religious leaders. So we're going to look at that this morning. The other way to see it is through the eyes of Levi, the tax collector. And third is to see it through the eyes of the disciples, or 
as followers of Jesus, how we would see it. Now, you may find yourself in any one of these groups this morning, and I hope you do. And I hope that the Lord will speak to you through his word in a real practical way. So let's look at it, right? So first, through the eyes of the religious leaders. It's important to remember the context in which Jesus is doing all of these healings, teachings, and acts, right? Jesus, in Mark 1.15, sets the scene for his ministry. He is going around preaching, declaring that the kingdom of God is here or breaking in. And we've talked about this extensively at Refuge, but the kingdom of God is this big idea in scripture. It's when God would return to the earth as its rightful king, and he would say, Set everything right. He would make everything sad come untrue. He would heal what was broken. He would fill up what was empty. One prophet talks about how God would take the mountains and he would level them and he would lift up every valley. And that's a, a poetic way of showing how God would balance the scales of the cosmos. He's going to fix everything. And this is what we see Jesus doing, right? Jesus is casting out demonic and unclean spirits. Why? Because they do not belong in God's good creation. He's delivering people from this demonic hold and power. He's healing many who are sick and afflicted with various diseases. He's cleansing and restoring the social order to the sick. Those with various skin disease, that records in Mark chapter 2. These people would have been declared unclean and outcast from society. We saw last week that he healed the paralytic, declaring to him that his sins are forgiving. As I said, all of this and more is found in the prophets concerning the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, Just quickly, Isaiah 35, um, beautiful passage, maybe write it down and and look it up later, but Isaiah 35 verses 5 through 6 say this about when God returned. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So see, Jesus is doing what the prophet said would happen when God's kingdom broke in on the world. The kingdom would restore, heal, and mend this broken world. It would make things whole anew. But you know what and who is not expected to be part of God's righteous, glorious kingdom? The wicked, the unrighteous. You can read it again and again and again in the prophets. And this is maybe something that we, maybe we only focus on this when we think about judgment, but judgment in scripture is always both negative and positive. God comes to judge unrighteousness, and he comes to reward and restore righteousness. And maybe we kind of focus on that one more, the negative side of things, but that is a part of the kingdom of God, is that God will judge those who have ruled on pain of death, that God will judge those who have ruled the world in violence and through scheming. And so the unrighteous, those who have not kept up the strictness of the law, those whose lives look more like the pagan Gentiles than faithful Jews, they will not be part of the kingdom of God. You can read this all throughout the prophets, and specifically in You know, the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, the focus is more on Israel there. But we could expand this out, as the other prophets do, to the whole world. God is going to judge the wickedness of the world, and he's going to reward the righteousness of the world. So in the kingdom of God, the wicked nations who followed idolatry would be judged, and the unfaithful Israelites along with them. 
And of course, the righteous would be rewarded. And here's the strange thing. In our story, Jesus is extending the kingdom to outsiders or what the religious leaders consider scum. Now, why so harsh? Well, some of you might know this, but the tax collectors and those who worked the toll booths were considered traitors to the nation of Israel. They, of course, worked for King Herod, who was a Gentile put in place by the Romans, and they worked for the Roman government. The tax collectors and the like were seen to have actually joined in the oppression of their own people with the Roman rulers. Uh, it's commonly known as in the story, the famous story of Zacchaeus, right? He was a wee little man. You guys, yeah, a few of you. Okay, cool. <laughs> but it's known that the tax collectors would exact more money than was required from their own people. And this was to fill their own pockets, to satisfy their own greed. So these were individuals who were taking, uh, excuse me, taking advantage of their nation, taking advantage of the weak taking advantage of the vulnerable. I mean, this is, this is despicable. Like, there's no way around it, right? People that do this kind of stuff that prey on, like, you know, old widows, like, th- these people are sick. Like, we would, everybody would agree in society, like, something is wrong with that individual. Like, they need help to, to prey on uh, someone like that or a little child. I mean, we still, even in our messed up world, we still consider those two things to be abhorrent and absolutely wrong when you prey upon old people and children. Well, that's what these guys were doing, really. And there's no way around how despicable this is. Not only that, but the religious elite would see these individuals as apostate Jews, who were hindering the kingdom of God. See, this is what the Pharisees, the Pharisees get a really, really bad rap. But do you want to know what the Pharisees were trying to do? The Pharisees were trying to keep the Jews from staying in exile. They wanted the exile to end. They wanted God to return. They wanted the blessings of the kingdom of David. And they thought that if they kept Mosaic law like the Levites were commanded to, that God would return, that they would be rewarded, that the kingdom of David would be set up. And so what they were trying to do is they were trying to reform Israel, and they were going around everywhere putting even more laws upon the people of Israel, trying to get them to keep the holiness code. So when they saw individuals like this who had sold out to the Roman powers who were not keeping up Mosaic law, these are, these are the people, these are the people that are ruining our world. These are the people that are ruining the promises of God for us. These are the people that are keeping us in exile. It's no wonder they were so hated. It's their fault that Israel is still in exile. It's their sin. It's their lack of zeal that is ruining their culture, their hold on the land, and the future stake in the kingdom of God. You can begin to see why why tax collectors and prostitutes and these types of people were so hated by the religious leaders. So now we can see where the big offense comes in. How could Jesus, this incredible rabbi, heralder of the kingdom of God, miraculous healer, eat and drink with these people? 
They're traitors. They're oppressors. They're scum. We should all be able to sympathize with how the religious leaders felt, at least in some way, shape, or form. Or maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal to us, right? Well, whatever. I eat with people all the time. It's not a big deal. Eating and drinking with people in this day and age, in this culture, still even to this day in Eastern cultures, is a very intimate thing. It was a sign of closeness and deep association. It's as if Jesus is totally condoning their lifestyle choices and behavior. So the religious leaders are greatly stumbled and ask, they're they're so stumbled, they won't even go to Jesus. They're going to go to Jesus' disciples. Why does this man eat with such scum? Like the shock and horror of the whole scene, right? So I was doing some research and studying, right? So there's a a rabbinic uh, interpretation of Torah. Maybe you've heard of it. Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Mishnah, rabbinic interpretation. In it is a reference to this kind of thinking. It says this, listen, keep thee, apparently they spoke Old English back then, keep thee far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked and lose not belief in retribution, right? Remember the judgment, right? Stay far from sinners, remember the judgment. Here's another one, another interpretation with the same kind of sentiment. Let not man ever associate with a wicked person, not even for the purpose of bringing him near to the Torah. Whoa, that's pretty harsh, right? Don't ever associate with wicked people, not even to redeem them. Like, they've made their bed, they're going to lie in it. So, what is Jesus doing here? Some modern people would identify Jesus as turning over the tables, giving the proverbial finger to the religious leaders, right? And, you know, sometimes people are just like, yeah, Jesus, like, just stick it to them. Like, this is what Jesus is about. So our culture, I just need to say this, our culture is currently all about deconstructing and tearing down tradition in the name of authenticity and truth. And though Jesus is authentic and truthful, this is not what he is doing. This is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not a progressive deconstructionist, okay? In fact, those who try to make Jesus their pet or mascot for defying every tradition and deconstructing everything around them need to reread the scriptures and the life of Jesus. I think sometimes we attribute way too much of the American individualistic spirit to the life of Jesus. So let me say this. Of course, Jesus upset the religious leaders and their strict interpretation of the law of Moses, but it wasn't because Jesus was a progressive or a revolutionary, at least in the way that we use the terms, but it was because Jesus was ancient. Jesus was recalling something ancient and rooted in the narrative of Scripture, and that was the heart of Yahweh, the God of Israel. God's heart, we see this in the prophets, is to bring back Israel to himself. Remember, Israel is the whore, the harlot, the one who has aligned herself with the other nations, gotten into bed with them, made alliance with them, followed after their gods. And God, Yahweh, has gone after them again and again and again and again. 
He's even handed them over to their sin so that they would get sick of it, so that they would, you know, like hate the repercussions so much that they would come running back to God. God's heart is to restore Israel to himself, to go after the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Listen to this, Psalm 142, 1 through 6. The psalmist says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. For the Lord builds up Jerusalem. Why? Because it was destroyed because of the sin of Israel. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Had the religious leaders forgotten that Yahweh is gracious and compassionate? That he's slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love, that he forgives sin and iniquity to the third and fourth generation, but by no means clears the guilty or unrepentant. The prophet Isaiah declared that when the Lord returned to Israel, he would gather his people together along with even the outcasts of Israel. And this is what the psalmist is celebrating. Listen to this again in a passage about the restoration of Israel. It says, The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. I love that. I, I love in Scripture when God identifies himself. Uh, you'll find all throughout the prophets that God has this soft place in his heart for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, and the poor. That he is the one who protects them. Not only that, but he is the one who avenges them. This is part of God's resume. It's almost like if we were to meet God, which one day we will, face to face. But if you were to meet God, say, you know, he's like a businessman, right? It's like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I protect the weak and the vulnerable, the poor and the widow. Oh, okay, nice to meet you, right? I mean, it's like, this is what he does. This is how he identifies himself. And I love this right here. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. Hey, Yahweh, who are you? What do you do? I gather the outcasts of Israel. I gather them to myself. I love these insights into the heart of God. Our God is the one who makes outsiders insiders. The lost found. The sick whole the sinner into a saint. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He is seeking out and loving on human beings who are far, far away from the God who created them and loves them. So that's one way to see this portion of Scripture. But there's another way. I think it's good to think about what the modern equivalent of an ancient tax collector would be. So let's think about this through the eyes of Levi. Everybody know what a meter maid is? Yeah. People love meter maids. 
You know, the guys and girls that go around town mercilessly giving tickets out to us innocent people that were only going to be five minutes, just grabbing a cup of coffee, didn't think I had need to put any money in the meter. I mean, come on, right? I'm just in the loading zone because I, I had my flashers on. Did you not see? I mean, I was... I've got all the excuses in the book. So uh, our church location used to be downtown, and I used to you know, hold up at a coffee shop all the time and study. And I swear to you, I've lived in a lot of places, and I have never seen people treated worse than meter maids in my life. Like, there's, there's no one else on earth that I've seen more berated and verbally abused than meter maids, right? I've seen them chased down, punched, screamed at, flipped off, cussed out. Like, people forget that they are human beings that are simply doing the job that our local government has, you know, hired and, and called them to do. Serious, I mean, I've seen stuff go down that is dark. <laughs> like, dude, it's a quarter. Like, you know, like, you could have just put a quarter in. Like, you could have avoided this whole thing. Anyway. I imagine that this is probably close to what Levi must have felt like. Day after day, exacting a toll for a government that everyone hated and wanted overthrown. I mean, just think for a minute about how our own country acts when it feels that its rights or freedoms are being threatened or infringed upon. People get straight up violent. So imagine then that you have aligned yourself with the oppressive Roman government. I mean, there are people, there are those among your people who carry daggers so that they can assassinate Roman soldiers. What do you think they want to do to you? Right? Think of the names that he would have been called day after day. Think of how he would have been treated day after day after day as people came to pay their tax or had to pay the toll for a land that God said belonged to them and to their fathers. And then one day, along comes a different sort of man. And this man... who's been announcing God's kingdom, doing signs and wonders, all of a sudden he walks up to Levi's booth and he says these astounding words. Come, follow me. He doesn't shout. Doesn't lift his voice. Doesn't swear. He didn't grumble or criticize. He did something totally unexpected. He offered Levi an invitation to his person and inner circle. I mean, this might be the first time in ages that someone's treated Levi like a human instead of a piece of trash. So I just want us to pause for a minute and think about in our society, and I mean, this could be locally. But even nationally, who are the people that we consider to be ruining our culture? These people are ruining our city, our nice, wonderful city. These people are ruining our country. Now, it depends on who you are. It depends on who you associate. It depends on what news media outlet you read. But there's all different sorts of opinions on this. But we still have these types of people in our world. 
people that we consider to be the lowest of the low, people that are ruining our world. And what we find in this scene is that our teacher, our Savior, goes after those people and invites them to be his friend. Invites them into his inner circle and to be his disciple. Now, in the very next scene, we find Jesus at a party, a celebration of sorts with these people. And again, I know I said this earlier, but I love this line. There were many tax collectors and sinners there, for they followed him. And I do want to note that, right? There are many tax collectors and sinners there, but notice they're following Jesus. So in the same way that you and I have all come from various backgrounds, and we have all sorts of baggage, and our stories are probably riddled with a lot of sin and a lot of evil, whether we have acted upon those things or whether we have simply thought those things. We've got a story to tell. And yet here we are today because maybe we're interested in Jesus. We want to be a follower of Jesus or we call ourselves a follower of Jesus. How are we any different from these people who have left that life even though they might still be identified with that, left that life to be a follower of Jesus. Now, when Jesus is questioned and criticized for the company he keeps, he responds, I love this, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Jesus replies, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. Who do doctors spend their time with? Doctors? Do doctors go golfing with other doctors? Is that how they, you know, spend their time? Yeah, no, they don't. Doctors spend time with sick people. That's what they do. That's why we pay them, to be with sick people to care for sick people, not the healthy. And this is Jesus' answer. I'm a doctor, and doctors need to be with those who are sick. Maybe disciples, we, should be identifying ourselves then as spiritual advice nurses. Let me tell you how to be with the doctor. Let me tell you how to get to the doctor. Let me point you in the right direction. To be with the doctor. But doctors spend time with those who are sick, not with the healthy. And T. Wright in his commentary, he says, Jesus was being obedient to a calling, and that calling was to be a kind of doctor. There's no point in the doctor only keeping company with healthy people. The doctor must associate with the sick. Jesus' whole ministry was to bring health, not just to the physically sick, but to Israel as a whole, and the whole world as a whole. That, however, would involve upsetting a lot of people for whom it was more comfortable to label people as outcasts and ignore them from then on. So we have the religious leaders 
who see this as how dare Jesus associate with these apostate people that are ruining our country, and Jesus responds to them. We have the perspective of seeing it from the eyes of Levi as someone who has never been treated of any value or any worth. And then, of course, we have it through the eyes of being a disciple. And we've reiterated many times that Mark's gospel is about discipleship to Jesus. It's about learning to follow him in his overall way of life in order to be like him. So in this passage, when we see Jesus going after sinners, inviting them into his company, keeping company with the sick and those considered outcasts from society, this is both a call and challenge to us. Jesus regularly ate and drank with those who are far from God. Do we? Could we say that about our life? I go after people that are far from God. I keep them in my company. I pursue friendships with people that are far from God. Now, many times we don't because the guilt by association, right? Or maybe because of our own moral prejudice, Well, I could keep company with these kinds of people, but not these kinds of people. Jesus doesn't have those moral prejudices that we do. He just goes after those who are sick. Apparently, that's all you need to be in Jesus' company. You just need to know that you are in need. You need to know that you're sick, and you can be in Jesus' company in his inner circle. So Jesus regularly ate and drank with those who are far from God. The question is, as disciples... Do we? Is this one of our rhythms or one of our patterns? Now, <clears throat> I do think that this is important to note. Somehow Jesus was able to be with people who were very far from God. His own holiness and goodness drew people rather than repelled them. There was nothing holier than thou about Jesus. Those far from God were attracted to him. How did Jesus do this? Because at the same time, Jesus was not affected. He was not colonized by the evil around him. He made the filthy clean. He made darkness light. He made brokenness whole. Oh, teach us, oh Jesus, how to do this. You know, years ago, we, uh, the churches were pushing just strongly for mission, right? Everything was about mission. Oh, go be with sinners. Go, you know, just do Bible study at the pub. Go to the pub. Go to the concert. Do all these things. We're back, you know, the 80s and the 90s. Christians tried to build this, like, terrible subculture. And we just try to copy every, you know, thing in culture. Like, if they had Bon Jovi, like, we're going to have Striper. You know, I mean, not that those are, like direct parallels but you know like we had Petra right you know like we had like our own version of this like oh don't go to you know that window deep decal person go to the Christian window decal person it's like all Christians just removed themselves from culture created this Christian subculture and we removed ourselves from the world we took the light out of culture the light of Christ Then we reacted to that, and we're like, put the light back in the culture, go out there, forget Christian businesses, forget Christian music, be Christians in a band, which is all great. Here's the problem. We sent those people out there, we didn't disciple them, and they never came back. They were colonized by the culture. They were more affected by the sinners and the culture around them than being effective for the gospel and the kingdom of God. See, these people... They come into Jesus' company. He invites them into 
his company. It's not that they just go out there and are separate from the church and just do their own thing. That is not the way of Jesus. But it is to invite those who are far from God into our daily rhythms. To invite them into our story and our journey. Of course, to join them in theirs as well. But Jesus was able to do this. He was able to be holy, set apart, do what the Father sent him to do. And this was attractive to people. And at the same time, he was not affected or colonized by the world around him. How did Jesus do this? We need to study this more and more as Christians. How we balance this. How we bring people that are far from God into the company of Jesus without being just affected so much by them that we really, like at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Like, yeah, holiness doesn't really matter. These really things really don't matter because Jesus just loves and accepts everyone. We say Jesus receives everyone, but look, he changes them. They followed him. They became his disciples. So this is something that we as a church, that we as individual disciples of Jesus need to study, need to think deeply through our our relationships with those that are far from God. Are we bringing them to Jesus? Are we bettering their lives? Or as one author put it, are we alerting them to the kingdom of God? Are our lives different enough that they question us? They look at our lives and say, man, this is, this is powerful. This is different. This is potent. This isn't like other families I've seen or other single people that I've met. You're different. That's how Jesus' life was. It was attractional in that sense. I think it's fascinating as we read this story. By the end of this story, we see that Levi, who is the outsider, along with the tax collectors and sinners, has been brought into Jesus' inner circle. The religious leaders who claim to know and be near God or in the inner circle are outside of the celebration in Jesus' circle, even resisting the work of God. Lastly, disciples as apprentices and followers of Jesus then, are being called to join Jesus in bringing outsiders and outcasts into fellowship with Jesus. We're inviting people along to be disciples of Jesus. So in light of that, a few last things. Do we treat sinners and social outcasts the way Jesus does. And maybe we need to go through a list. Maybe we need to really search our hearts and be like, who, who would be my, you know, scum? <laughs> it's like a really, like, insightful homework assignment, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to the deep places of my heart. I'm going to find out who I think are the scum of the earth. Maybe we should all do that, right? So, do we treat sinners and social outcasts the way Jesus does? I challenge you to make a list and then ask yourself, how do I treat these people? How do we treat the spiritually sick? Do we treat them like a disease that will infect us? A stain on our reputation and the reputation of the gospel? People waiting to be judged or a people to be loved? 
Many times the way we view outsiders is that they need to get right before coming to God. They need to clean themselves up in order to be presentable. But this is not the pattern we see in Jesus. I love this. This is coming from Ben Meyer. He says this, The act of Jesus was to reverse that structure. With Jesus, it was communion first, conversion second. His table fellowship with sinners implied no acquiescence in their sins, for the gratuity of the reign of God canceled none of its demands. But in a world in which sinners stood inescapably condemned, Jesus' openness to them was irresistible. Contact triggered repentance. Conversion flowered from communion. In this tense little world of ancient Palestine, where religious meanings were the warp and woof of the social order, this was a potent phenomenon. You know, as followers of Jesus, our heart should be the same as this, to build that same presence and culture of grace in our lives and in our homes that is present in Jesus. Where those who are far from God feel safe. They feel safe around Christians. I mean, if you ask just any person on the street, what is the first thing they think of when they think of Christians? You know what it is? It's one of two. Judgmental, self-righteous. Those are the two things that people think about us automatically. And just with our posture, with our tone, we can just confirm those assumptions. So what does it look like then for us to build a culture of grace in our lives? Where those who are far from God are surprised by our hospitality. Are surprised by our graciousness. That we don't like bat an eye when they talk to us about their like crazy lifestyle, what they've been through, what they've done. We're not like, oh my, sorry, sorry, I just never heard anything like that before. It's like, you just put such a wall up, you know? It's a funny thing being a pastor, you can imagine. People apologize to me all the time for things that I've got nothing to do with. Like, F, oh, sorry, pastor. (laughs) Like, okay, you know? Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, sorry, pastor. It's just like, and I have friends who are pastors who are just like, yeah, that's right. You should be. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like get me. I was actually at a pastor's lunch a while ago. I won't say where I was. Maybe I was in a different place. I don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe I was in a different county. But I was at this pastor's lunch and this, uh, this <laughs> the waiter said like, oh, Jesus Christ. Sorry about that. Uh, like, because he spilled something. And another pastor there was like, our Lord and Savior, and then just stared him down. And I was like, get me out of here. You know, like, oh my gosh, I just felt so awkward. Rather than allowing the way that we treated our waiter, our conversation as men not being derogatory or objectifying women, being sexualized, rather than allowing that to shine as our light positively, the way that we loved on each other, the way that we were talking about deep things in our lives with one another, allow that to be the salt and light. No, instead we're just like, that's right, buddy, you better be sorry for insulting our Lord and Savior by saying his name about spilling water. 
Now, I hope that nobody in, that room, in, in this room does that, but maybe we do. That's not the posture of Jesus. It just isn't. That doesn't win people to the gospel. It is the grace and mercy. Remember, as Paul says, the gospel begins with kindness. When the kindness and loving mercy of our God appeared not by works that we have done, but by his grace he saved us. When the loving kindness of our God appeared, what does it look like for my life to be a megaphone for God's loving kindness? Again, just going back to that scene, asking our waiter, talking to him about his life, how his day is going, being aware of him. We're not just a bunch of religious leaders here to do our thing and ignoring everyone who we think is underneath us, but we're bringing him into the conversation, treating him as another human being who has been made in the image of God, someone to be loved, someone to be considered. I know that this is simple, but truly, church, in going to the grocery market, going to Starbucks, going to Pete's, wherever you go, whatever you do, making eye contact with people, asking them how they're doing with sincerity. I mean, it really, it doesn't take a whole lot to just be a dignified human being these days, sadly, right? So if you just do a few of those little things, your life will stand out. And you will be given opportunity to invite people along, to show them hospitality, to bring them along as you follow Jesus. So, church, let us build individually, collectively, these cultures of grace to practice the posture of Jesus where people who are very far from God feel welcome and accepted and yet confronted with the reality of God's grace and good news in the light of their sins and failings. That we have a big God who isn't like, oh, by people's sin. you right. We got a big God. The other day somebody said something to me about their sin and I was like, oh, that's okay. Jesus can take care of that. And they were like, What? Yeah, our God is in the business of cleansing people, of healing them, of making them whole, of making those who are unrighteous, righteous, changing them. God can take care of those things. Let's not freak out. Let's not worry. Let's not pretend like their story is over. They're still in process. God can do great things as we practice this posture of grace. I'm going to close with this. When the grace of Jesus Christ defines the doctrine and culture of God's people, sinners, outsiders feel welcome, and they can safely confess and forsake sin. Even extreme sinners can find themselves wonderfully forgiven and freed. Let's build a culture where sinners feel safe to join us on a Sunday morning or at a small group or at our dinner table with our family or at you know, a table at the coffee shop. Let's build that culture. Let's give people a lot of time and exposure to the good news because changing is difficult. And we want to give people exposure to the gospel and God's grace again and again and again and again so they have time to think over their lives at a deep level in order to really commit their lives to Jesus Christ. Of course, the goal is not to make the church safe for sin to continue to fester. It's to make it safe for confession 
and repentance. So as disciples of Jesus, we are called to follow in his steps to alert the Levites and outcasts of this world to the kingdom of God by inviting them into our own lives, going after those who are far from God. The question is, will we respond to this call? Or is this too inconvenient to our rhythms? Is this, you know, just, we're just not interested. The question then is, are we followers of Jesus? I mean, this is what Jesus was known for associating with those who are far from God. In some way, shape, or form, disciples' lives should be imitating this character aspect of the life of Jesus. So, Lord, search our hearts. Search our hearts. Lord, remind us this morning that we ourselves were born far from you. Lord, that there are no God has no grandchildren. Remind us of that. But it was the grace and the kindness and the, of the love of God our Savior that reached to us when we were far from you and brought us near. Remind us of that. Lord, we are not better than anyone else. We have simply been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And those far from you can have that redemption as well. Remind us of that, Lord. Stir up our hearts, our compassion, our empathy for those who are far from you. Lord, open our eyes to our neighbors and our coworkers, employers and employees, Lord, who are far from you. Lead us, Lord, in those conversations where we can love on them, where we can show them the posture, that gracious posture of Jesus. Lord, draw people to the healing, cleansing blood of our Savior. Do that through our lives, Lord. And so now, Lord, as we close our time in worship and praise, we pray, Lord, that you would do that. Holy Spirit, stir up this word in our hearts. Bring conviction, bring direction. Lord, speak to us now. Speak through us to one another now as we minister to one another, as we come to your table. The bread and the cup reminds us of that shed blood that is for the life of the world, that body that was broken for us. Remind us, Lord, of what you've done for us and send us out as witnesses of your grace, of your mercy, of the transformation that you long to bring as we become followers of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.